0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it's coming up to 4 o'clock and it is Jan Bartlett with Tuesday Home Time and I'll be here until 5.30 this afternoon. Today, we hear more from environmentalist Lee Tan. Last week, she spoke about the fires in Indonesia and about work that she's been doing with Friends of the Earth groups in Timor Leste. Today, she'll be talking about Malaysia, her home country or the country where she was born. She's lived in Australia for many, many years and travelled widely, talking about corruption and the lack of human rights in. Malaysia. At going back in history to 1991 and the Santa Cruz Massacre known as the Dili Massacre Bob Mutz was working with Community Aid Abroad at that time and he was actually there at the massacre and was slightly injured as well and he's recounting what happened on that day and how it impacted him for many years to come. Also the defeat of of the left in the National Assembly elections in Venezuela and I'll be speaking with Dr Tim Anderson who's Senior Lecturer in the Department of Political Economy at the Sydney University. But let's do it what we always do. I think he's only got one more week to go for this year, Mr Kevin Healy.
2: A weak journalist that went top marks to Lord Rupert of Wapping and a trillion brickbats to the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Fairfax Media for their coverage of these charges against evil construction union officials who took illegal action. As an aside, unions are so evil, these responsible, those lo- responsible law abiding people who are not evil, have been forced to introduce laws making it illegal for unions to be unions. Illegal to represent their members because they abuse the privilege. Representing their members shows just how evil they are. So they've been forced to pass laws banning unions from being unions, and when unions have the criminal audacity to be unions, they are. obviously illegal and have no respect for the law. So officials, evil officials who took illegal action over a little bit of danger, a few safety problems in their industry, crippling caring employers with outrageous demands that building workers should be able to go to work and, and caring employers agree with that, but also be able to go home from work uninjured and alive we also agree with that naturally naturally caring employer mike kane the workers of bore all evil unions expressed his concern but that demand must be balanced sensibly against the costs of providing that safety and the impact of those costs on ourselves and more particularly on our clients and therefore on the whole community unlike us the evil union selfishly restricts its concerns to its lazy, avaricious members, regardless of the community consequences. But the Fairfax media, not one mentioned that charging two unionists meant the state socialist government had also been charged along with the state big supremo who 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 is in the same faction as the evil union. No link whatever in the Falfax media, whereas Lord Rupert on page one, two, three for, well, sensible, appropriate balance and objective coverage would have us believe the charges were laid directly against the government and refusing to comment on the grounds that the matter was before the courts was clear guilt, was going to ground. Ground perhaps, but no grounds for the connection that we can see. No, no, of course there are. Lord Rupert says so. Doubtless if and ever the Grillo the workers face trial over those three pedestrians killed by one of its walls just falling over, the Lord Rupert of Wapping soon will devote page after page of objectivity to how the caring business class government in Canberra cannot survive given the connection between caring business and the caring business class party. Or perhaps the small whopping sin story this morning on the non-evil filthy rich using tax havens to buy luxury cars, luxury goods, pay exclusive private filthy rich school fees. How can the caring business class party survive all that? They went to the same schools, drive the same cars, use the same tax havens. Except in their case, as big supremo Malcolm Tunnable explained, it's to maximise their taxes. No, no, that's minor misdemeanour stuff compared to evil unions carrying on about safety in the workplace. After all, who ever heard of a construction worker being murdered or, sorry, or killed or injured? Ah, uh, justice. Well, they, the evil unionists and the socialist state government, have been charged after full, unbiased, fair hearings, presentation of properly tested evidence, balancing the scales of justice by an unbiased, fair, her most gracious majesty's royal Kanga mission, carrying out its purpose in life, what it was set up to do. As an aside, Lord Rupert will not forgive the people of Victoria, Willie, for voting the wrong way. Oh, and for those whose knowledge of what's happening in the world relies on the Wapping Sin, just to update you, there is a climate change conference taking place. Not that the Wapping Sin has ignored the issue totally. They've had a series of articles, including the Institute of Public, very, very private affairs, Alan Moron their very own economic guru, Terry Pukan, and the usual suspect columnist, all telling us not only is climate change not happening, but it's going the other way. Pacific Islands, for instance, are not only not sinking, they're rising out of the sea. And even if it was happening, we can't afford to do anything about it anyway. The economy or the environment and the planet, it's a no-brainer. Oh, and the Wapping Sin did mention the conference. Well, Paris, they reported these violent, long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden worker, and iron lots had bashed up the poor, defenceless French... Ah, <coughs> <coughs> uh, sorry, Gendarmerie. So, just thought I'd let you know, Wapping Sin readers, there is a conference going on. Gendarmerie. See the... <coughs> again, sorry, a police here have threatened strike action unless pay negotiations get settled. State government... Please, please, don't settle. It'll be like a breath of fresh air just once to walk in the street feeling safe. Notice one of the threatened bands is not wearing name tags. And at all those protests over all those years, we didn't realize they weren't wearing them as a protest to support whatever we were protesting about. The bashing the proverbial out of bit must have just been to fool their superiors. They were really onside comrade cops. As economic gurus scuttled them more or less announced, True Blue Aussie's economy was thriving, leaving the rest of the world for dead, he boasted, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review has been busily promoting its Caring Business Class summer 2016, scheduled for March, with an array of True Blue Aussie's finest, the great corporate leaders of the great corporates proffering their good-for-all-of-us expertise, outlining what we need to be good for all of us. I think we all agree, they agreed, that crippling corporate and personal taxes must be abolished, which, after all, would make no difference whatever to what the government collects. It, it's just a matter of principle that we might have to pay them, and and they must be replaced by the only fair tax, an increased and broadened goods and services tax, which treats us all as equal, which is as it should be. And it equals a great benefit to all of us and frank Lowy than low looks serious the government has a responsibility to put up billions to support my little hobbies like bidding for the world cup yes they all patted him comfortingly. it must have been awful for you frank awful awful and the aforementioned bore all workers, Big Supremo Mike Kane, the workers, sought support, we must smash the evil unions. Smash the evil unions, smash the evil unions, they chorused. That would make us all better off. And change your name when the heat gets too hot. Diane Smite refugees, Gander, a broad spectrum saged, and given broad spectrum was transfilled the refugees until very recently, as the proverbial hit the fan. Good advice. With a bit of luck, they'll forget who you really are. It does raise an interesting point. Coca killers, David, gone sky high profits. Pondered. Uh, given our common problem is clearly the workers. Is there a way we could operate without them? It would eradicate a lot of problems. Good point, David, but would that mean... Uh, good God, would that mean we'd have to... Oh, dear, uh, would we have to do the work? Oh, no, no, the poor dears gasped. Ah, uh, Yes, that does raise a difficulty. We'll have to figure through a little more. There must be an answer. Look, look, let's put it on the agenda for March and we'll all give it some thought. Isn't it heartwarming to hear these great troublowossies who contribute so much to all of us, selflessly devoting their time to the common good, and won't that conference make a huge contribution to national thought and welfare? A uh, Welfare, yes, that's something else we must get rid of. It's a national disgrace. All that money that could be supporting us, supporting those inferior bludging people who, who just take, take, take. They never stop thinking for all of us. This outrageous cyber attack on the Weather Bureau, whose daily prognostications are apparently top secret, reminds me the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world complained bitterly that evil China was still spying on it. Uh, Leaving us to ponder, of course, how did they find out? How, How do they know? Tough one. The peace-loving, non-violent US and Her Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country have been forced to practice a little bit of violence in order to keep the Middle East terrorists under control. The U.S.O.B. Secretary for Offensive Train-Killing Ashes to Ashes praised the train-killing brilliance, expertise of the brave young U.S.O.B. men and women in uniform to bring peace where there is violence. The cream of U.S. of train-killer youth will sort out the place in no time. And we can take his word for it because, well, we've only got to look at Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, you name it. Peace follows the U.S. Ob and its coalition of the killing acolytes wherever they go. Finally, the anti-peace. Evil Russia produced these grainy pictures claiming they proved liberty, freedom, and democracy, love, and Turkey was trafficking oil for the terrorists, which the U.S. Ob dismissed as lies and propaganda. These pictures are as reliable as the stuff we produced, colon, as in full of, produced at the U.N. of the U.S. of the U.N. of the world so we could invade evil Iraq. In other words, we know a pack of lies when we see them because if there's anything we're expert at. Good afternoon.
1: And that of course, was Mr Kevin Healy. And if you'd like another dose, a longer dose of Mr Kevin Healy, you can have that tomorrow between 9 and 10 for his program City Limits with his co-workers on the program. And I believe it's just about all women tomorrow, with plus his guests. So that's something... For tomorrow, 9 until 10. City Limits.
3: Radio Adelaide, Australia's longest-running community radio station, is calling upon supporters to speak out before it's too late. The University of Adelaide sold Radio Adelaide's home on North Terrace to help fund its new medical school. A decision and funds commitment was expected in November, but instead the university has opened another brief consultation period that pushes a decision closer to Christmas. The station community is concerned that this is a precursor to shutting the station down. Show your support for a station that supports our diverse community and head to www.saveradioadelaide.org to sign the petition. 3CR in solidarity with Radio Adelaide.
1: Here's a song for the dreamer. Late night, and well, bruise and the flat.
4: Get the lowdown on the know-how, the food know-how. Victorian households are throwing away over $2,000 a year in wasted food. That's just not smart. You can be smarter than the average Victorian by joining Food Know-How and learn simple steps to reduce your food waste, save money and protect the environment. This program is free to residents of Yarra, Moorland, Darabin, Maribyrnong, or Whittlesey. Visit foodknowhow.org.au. Funding for the project provided by Victorian Government's Metropolitan Local Government Waste and Resource Recovery Fund.
1: The Food Knowhow
4: program is a 3CR supporter.
1: On the program last week, environmentalist Lee Tan spoke about the disastrous fires in Indonesia and also work she's involved with in Timor-Leste. Today we continue with Malaysia, her country of birth. When she spoke about Timor-Leste, she mentioned that people were frightened to speak up against corruption and bad government. I put it to her that in Malaysia, that's not necessarily the case,
5: and people pay the price. Yes, Malaysia is in a very precarious situation with a Prime Minister who obviously, with evidence shown by you know, reputable international journalists and what have you, even their own minister and law enforcement agency, but he refused to step down. And not only that, he refused to step down. The Prime Minister, uh, Najib Dunraza, he went after whistleblowers he sacked the chief prosecutor who was a day away from issuing him an arrest warrant and that's very serious lately the chief prosecutor who was murdered his brothers just issue an uh, a statutory declaration explaining why he's very sure his brother was murdered because his name was in a charge sheet against the prime minister and he was a day away from issuing it and that he called him up the brother charles lives in the USA the day before he disappeared you know there's been evidence like that we cannot depend on the malaysian court to come up with a fair judgment but there's been evidence everywhere that first he took a huge amount of money from the national sovereign fund one mdb secondly you know, to cover up his sect, his uh, ministers and even his deputies, whoever dared to challenge him or, you know, demand for him to step down or or to try to charge him. It's very difficult for the country. That's because there's so much corruption. Like you were saying, when these Timor mm.
1: people are, are frightened, but people have come out in Malaysia. They are willing
5: to push this forward and they're paying the price. That's right, precisely. And um, I'm not sure how long this will continue before the Prime Minister steps down. He will not step down because he's got too many skeletons in the closet. At The moment he stepped down, basically the skeleton will start falling out. So he's going to fight until the end, i say. And then it depends on how strong the movement is in Malaysia. And then if he steps down, Who is going to take his place is a huge question. I would say that the entire party which he belongs to is problematic and that the Malaysian judiciary system has been eroded so badly by the previous government under Mahathir Mohamad that um, the checks and balances is no longer there. Well, it's virtually a one-party state, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. The country hasn't had any change of government since independence. I mean, that's really ridiculous. Yeah. And where does the Bearside movement
1: fit into this?
5: Yes. That's the civil society movement that's trying to change things. Obviously, there's been enough informed people in the Malaysian society, which is a blessing, wanting to see change. And these are very courageous people who dare to challenge the system through nonviolent direct action by mobilising ordinary citizens. But as you may know, Malaysia is a multicultural country but dominated by the Muslim Malay. The Bersay movement is strong amongst the non-Muslim Malay. It needs kind of stronger support or recognition from the Muslim Malay. But at the same time, when I've spoken with some Muslim Malay, they say they totally support it. But because they do depend on government subsidy or support for their economic activities or businesses or whatever, they tended to lay low and try and do it through the ballot box. Yeah and then the ballot box itself is a problem because when i i understand from reading and from talking to pe- different players in Malaysia that the government actually pay foreign workers to become temporarily citizen at voting time to kind of increase the vote for their ruling party and that makes it very difficult for change when you have this kind of election rigging happening
1: and the government is willing to use sedition act against people Absolutely.
5: I mean, I think most people in Australia in the progressive movement would have heard that a cartoonist, Zuna, who's been very courageous in you know, expressing his, his view of the government through cartoons, has been charged under the Sedition Act, although he's got a lot of international recognition for his, uh, for his courage and for his work in his fearing for his freedom. He's not sure when he's going to be thrown into jail.
1: Yeah. And the leader of the Socialist Party in Malaysia is also facing a number of years in jail under the Sedition Act?
5: Yes, indeed. In fact, the Sedition Act was uh, used against him earlier than the cartoonists because he's uh, an easy target, Uh, you know, coming from a minority party with very limited exposure, unlike the cartoonists, yeah.
1: And the environmental situation in Malaysia
5: well as we all have heard in australia the linus corporation and its rare earth processing plant nothing has changed except that the the plant is running at a hefty economic loss to the company or financial loss but it is unfortunately propped up by the japanese who is using it to undermine the monopoly by the chinese who has been the biggest supplier of rare earth? And China and Japan it's been having a fair bit of um, diplomatic tension over territories and islands or whatever that they're both trying to claim. So they're using, you know, China's using rare earth uh, control, and then Japan's trying to secure the strategic matter supply. And because of that, they are propping up the Linus Corporation. And what's on the plate for you in the coming Um, months? I'm actually returning to Timor next week. Yes, I'm continuing to work with uh, Friends of the Earth, Timor Leste, to acquit. A Finnish funded project where we were producing biomass brigades to try and reduce the use of firewood, where we were trialing the wetland, constructed wetland uh, wastewater treatment system in four different areas in Timor, and where we were meant to be do- putting solar power uh, energy. Generation, But the the last one, we are postponing it for now because they haven't yet got a grid-fed system. And any other system will be too technical for local people to maintain in a sustainable manner. So we're going to try and put that on hold, or look for other options that still uses solar power, but perhaps not depending on the battery or regulator or something that will break down and are expensive to replace.
1: Do you work in with the Alternative Technology Association? Uh,
5: yeah, I'm aware of that, and uh, they have been working a lot in Timor. We haven't linked up with them formally yet on that, mainly because I'm trying to build local institutions because none of us going to stay there forever, including Alternative Technology. Yeah, and they're great people. So I'm trying to look at the local institutions, see if they can learn something or do something without any extensive external support in ways that they can uh, remain self-sufficient. So you, I do acknowledge the work of uh, ATA.
1: And that is Lee Tan talking about, the last little bit was about East Timor. She's worked in many countries in the area, PNG, Indonesia, Malaysia, Timor and also of course with acf and the friends of the earth here in australia and hopefully in the new year we'll be hearing more from lee tan
0: join friends of the earth's anti-nuclear and clean energy collective for in Terra, a fun and creative way to contribute to a future that is renewable not radioactive in Terra is an art auction featuring beautiful artworks from local and national artists The majority of funds raised will support the Australian Nuclear-Free Alliance, which brings together Aboriginal and civil society groups working toward a nuclear-free future and to leave uranium in the ground. So come along to Hogan Gallery, 310 Smith Street, Collingwood, on Wednesday, 9th December. Artworks on view from 5pm. Auction starts at 7. For more information, email ace at foe.org.au. Friends of the Earth are a 3CR supporter.
6: Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways, and they kill us, and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing.
0: Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch.
6: They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people.
0: Who does the killing?
6: The company has uh, specially arranged security forces.
0: Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377.
1: The Santa Cruz Massacre, also known as the Dili Massacre, was the shooting of at least 250 East Timorese pro-independence demonstrators in the capital Dili on the 12th of November 1991 during the Indonesian occupation of East Timor. Melbourne activist Bob Muntz was in Dili and witnessed the massacre being slightly wounded himself. I recorded the following interview with Bob a couple of months ago
7: an opportunity came to work at Community Aid Abroad as a program officer managing uh, the Community Aid Abroad programs in uh, various countries. After about 12 months, I think it was, uh, I found myself being asked to uh, travel to East Timor to investigate the possibility of setting up a Community Aid Abroad program there. I was under a little bit of pressure to do that in a hurry. Normally you you could take your time about uh, working out whether it was a good idea to set up a program you'd visit there and uh, at an uh, appropriate time and uh, write a report and uh, get discussed you'd see how you go but uh, my boss was quite keen that I go at a particular time as soon as possible because he was having an argument with another arm of community abroad that wanted to accept an AusAid program in East Timor and He thought that that wasn't an appropriate thing to do when the place was under military occupation by the Indonesian armed forces and there were massive human rights abuses taking place all the time. If you took part in a large AusAid program, you had no choice but to work through the Indonesian government, which implied endorsement of what they were doing. My boss, to his credit, wasn't very happy with that. So he was urging me to uh, get off to East Timor and uh, search out the possibilities of setting up a small uh, program that would operate uh, independently of the Indonesian government, which is the way Community Aid Abroad always worked. By the way, can you uh, get me some good arguments as to why uh, these people shouldn't take up this uh, tender for this uh, AusAid program of some large-scale farming or something or another? Yes, I thought I could do that, but it wasn't really the time to do it. In fact, A few days before I was due to leave Australia for that purpose, I received a message that civil war had broken out in uh, one part of East Timor. It turned out that that uh, report was slightly exaggerated, but there was extreme tension in the country. And the reason for that was that Portugal, the former colonising power, had been talking for quite some time about uh, sending an investigative mission to East Timor to see what was going on and this the Timorese desperately wanted. They wanted as much exposure to what was happening in the country. When I arrived in the country, I found that there were enormous expectations on this proposed Portuguese parliamentary visit, investigation of the country, that many people assumed that in some undefined way, if the Portuguese came and visited, this would somehow be followed fairly quickly by uh, a process leading to independence. And I thought, correctly, as it turned out, that there was absolutely no prospect of that happening, that expectations amongst the Timorese had been elevated to an enormous extent, to the point where their expectations were totally unrealizable, and that this was leading them to uh, undertake somewhat desperate acts, which uh, were likely to be followed by uh, very repressive action from the Indonesian military, and not much response from the uh, international forces, the United Nations or Portugal or anybody else. So I was in uh, East Timor for the purpose of investigating the possibilities of sending up a small community development program at a most uh, unpropitious time. It was virtually impossible for me to do uh, what I'd been sent there to do. I'd planned to spend a couple of weeks there, but in the event, I was only there for a week. But a week was more than enough to tell me what was going on the first few days there I travelled from the north coast to the south coast of uh, East Timor where this Australian government aid project was planned to take place and just travelling in the bus there with my interpreter so reminded me of what I'd read and heard about people travelling around Nazi Germany in the Second World War. You were stopped at military checkpoints every, at every small town or village you went through, the military officers, armed people would come and check the bus out, they'd take a couple of people off and uh, interrogate them and The bus would move on and nobody knew what happened to those people who were taken off the bus, but you'd fear for their safety, to put it mildly. And at one of those stops, I was taken off the bus by uh, a very authoritarian Indonesian military officer, demanded to know what I was doing, insisted my bags all be searched. And in my bags, I had some documents relating to this proposed Australian government project. He'd certainly want to know what I was doing with those, I think, if he found them. But uh, fortunately, his subordinates... uh, weren't very uh, diligent in checking my bags and they never found it. But he went through my uh, address books and notebooks and I had some uh, telephone numbers for various uh, Fretland representatives in Indonesia that I'd been given, but I thought I'd carefully disguised them uh, as Australian telephone numbers and uh, he flipped through that book but didn't uh, ask any questions about it. I didn't know what was going to happen, whether I was going to be arrested or sent back to Delhi, or deported or, or what. But eventually um, I was allowed back on the bus and proceeded through to uh, my destination. The first point of contact I had was uh, a Catholic priest's house or his, uh, the church and the associated living quarters next to it and uh, I found a, a priest there who I could have a reasonable conversation with. Half a dozen uh, young men who I was told were there because that was the only place of sanctuary where they could felt even reasonably safe. Had one of the most tense discussions I've ever had in my life, I think partly about uh, what could be done in the way of setting up a community development program for community aid abroad, but more about the situation in the country, which was so tense that really nothing could be done. There was no freedom to do anything except maybe talk to uh, representatives of the Catholic Church in the confines of the church. You couldn't talk to uh, local people because it wouldn't be safe for them, and the place was crawling with... uh, Indonesian uh, military. Couldn't do much except uh, stay in the hotel. The military said we had to stay in for the day and then uh, go back to Dili, the capital. On another day when I was there, I'd run out of uh, people I could find to talk to about uh, my purpose in being there. So I went with another foreigner I'd met and we went off to the beach a few kilometres out of town and just uh, maybe go for a swim and uh, admire the scenery. And we're sitting there on the beach, isolated from anybody, we heard this truck coming around the the shores of the bay. turned out to be a military truck, a bunch of soldiers in the back. They stopped 20, 30 metres away from me and my colleague, got out of the back of the truck, and I could hear them slamming the bolts home on their rifles. So the two of us sat there on the, the beach looking at each other, wondering if we were about to be shot. These people came over with smarmy grins on their faces, had a bit of a chat to us, then went away again. They just wanted to scare the daylights out of them. They certainly succeeded. The tension was such that you never knew where it was going to stop. It might stop at someone simply trying to intimidate you or who knows. So that was the atmosphere of the place. But uh, when I uh, came back from my longer visit, uh, overnight visit to the south coast that evening, I went out to dinner at the hotel I was staying at, heard from other people that... uh, A handful of other foreigners there, that there was going to be a rally early in the next morning to commemorate the death of a couple of uh, Timorese activists who'd been uh, killed a couple of weeks beforehand in a confrontation with the military. And there was going to be uh, a Catholic mass at the Catholic church on one side of the town and then a march through the city to uh, the cemetery where these uh, two guys had been buried that this was going to be more than just uh, a ceremonial march. It was going to be uh, a public demonstration of demands for uh, independence. It was pretty obvious uh, that there would be some reaction from the uh, Indonesian military.
1: Had the Portuguese delegation arrived at that Uh, time?
7: Yes, the Portuguese delegation had actually been cancelled. I knew that before I went there, but the Timorese didn't. Or if they'd been told they didn't believe it, perhaps they had been told. But these huge expectations they had that the arrival of the Portuguese delegation would uh, be to their advantage in some undefined way had been completely dashed. And the the delegation had been cancelled. It required uh, some negotiations with the Indonesian military or the Indonesian occupying power. They couldn't reach agreement on the terms under which they would come, and so the delegation was cancelled. So there being preparations on both sides, the Timorese activists who wanted uh, in, desperately wanted independence, and the Indonesian military for that delegation. The military seeking to assert their authority in various ways, and the Timorese desperately uh, looking for every possible way of demonstrating their desire for independence. Twelve hours' notice of this planned demonstration. There were half a dozen foreigners in town. We all talked with one another about what we do and the consensus was that there was a likelihood that there would be some repressive action taken against the Timorese, that they would get beaten up. I don't think anyone thought uh, that what did transpire was a possibility, but we're concerned that the Timorese might get beaten up and thought we had a duty as foreign observers to go along with notebooks and cameras, make a visible presence uh, with a view that uh, such actions could help protect the Timorese. On previous occasions, other notables like the Pope had visited East Timor at one point and uh, the Timorese had staged the demonstration and uh, they'd been uh, beaten up with sticks and so forth, but I don't think anyone had been shot and killed. That sort of thing had happened in uh, the presence of the a, a Pope I think there may have been a couple of American officials uh, visited in similar circumstances, and there were demonstrations there. And uh, So what we were thinking about was Timorese being beaten up and not large numbers of Timorese being killed, and we thought that our visible presence might uh, help inhibit the uh, actions of the Indonesian military. The foreigners present, with the exception of one who uh, had an injured back and uh, was thought... Uh, Wise for her not to uh, take part, agreed that we would go along and observe what happened. And the following morning, I did that. Early rising, I had my uh, interpreter with me, who was a young student from uh, Sydney University. He'd had a mixed parentage his father was Malaysian and his mother was uh, New Zealander. He looked like uh, a lot of the Timorese, who would had mixed Portuguese Timorese parentage. He could mingle with the Timorese fairly easily and appear to be one of them, which proved his disadvantage eventually, but uh, he couldn't quite play the role that uh, I and other Westerners planned to play. So he went off on his own uh, earlier than me and uh, I went alone to the uh, the starting points of this demonstration at, at a church, then followed a rally that went through the streets and uh, as soon as they left the church, people unrolled these banners that came from nowhere, all talking about independence and Viva Timor-Leste and George Bush, George Bush the Senior, who was then uh, President of the US. Please intervene. A whole range of uh, slogans which made their intentions absolutely clear. And there are also banners uh, talking about Fretilin and uh, Valentil, which was the armed wing of Fretilin. It couldn't have possibly been more provocative to the Indonesians. As it turned out, the Indonesians uh, were determined to suppress this and uh, did so in the most brutal way. They let the uh, rally go through town uh, unmolested but had then gathered outside the the cemetery, which had been the end point of the rally. And uh, my sense was that uh, the demonstrators, and there were about, or at least a thousand of them, they didn't quite know what to do next, I think. They were determined to provoke the Indonesians. I think they're all desperate and are prepared to risk their lives in their desperation. And what do you do when you go through town and nothing much has happened? So they hung about uh, outside the cemetery and before long, uh, a large contingent, of maybe some hundreds of uh, Indonesian soldiers came marching down the road in their direction, at which time uh, I tried to fade away in the background, and there were, there were some Timorese doing the same thing. I think there were Timorese who decided they'd had enough and uh, they were afraid of what was going to happen. i just started uh, quietly walking down the road when uh, there were bursts of gunfire and I found myself running down the street expecting a bullet in the back at any moment. I ran off uh, around the corner and at least I was out of the line of fire, but with hundreds of Timorese... Uh, doing likewise, most of them younger and fitter than me, and uh, passing me as we went down the street. All of us, uh, Timorese, me and other foreigners, tried to melt into a a housing area just next to the cemetery, running down alleyways and so forth to get away. And uh, most of us had uh, managed to do that until after maybe 20 minutes, I was found myself running down a small alleyway and a, an Indonesian soldier with a rifle slung over his shoulder turned around the corner of the alley about 30 metres in front of me. So I turned around and ran the other way, as did uh, Timorese with me, and uh, ran into a house and uh, within a few seconds it seemed there were bursts of gunfire outside the house and a whole lot of people were screaming, women who owned the house, and children, and uh, the front door of the house had been bolted. I'd gone in the back door. I just unbolted the the, the front door and ran. I assumed, correctly or otherwise, that I was uh, liable to be a target if uh, the Indonesian had seen me. I think that was probably would have been the case. Uh, perhaps if he uh, the soldier concerned had a chance to stop and think about it, he might have uh, thought, well, it, it might be... More uh, uh, appropriate to uh, shoot the Timorese, but not me. There might be more consequences if he shot me, but uh, that's not what I was thinking at the time. And I ran away to another house, and uh, the owner didn't really want to let me in, but eventually he agreed. And uh, I hid in that house for some time. And uh, the owner, I think I'm sure he wanted to get rid of me from the house because it could implicate him, came back with. Uh, a Red Cross official uh, in a vehicle, and uh, uh, he escorted me back to my hotel. So I'd I'd survived the massacre, but uh, didn't really know uh, what was uh, ahead of me. I didn't know what had happened to my interpreter. He was nowhere to be seen, and I didn't find out until uh, the following day that, that he'd been shot in the street trying to escape I think he was headed in a different direction from me and I think he was trying to get to the International Telephone Centre to presumably make a call to uh, Australia. But he'd been shot down and uh, uh, eventually found by the Red Cross and taken to hospital, but he died uh, shortly after reaching hospital from his wounds.
1: You're listening to an interview with Bob Munts, who at the time in 1991 was working with Aid Abroad, and witnessed the Dilly massacre.
7: I had a few wounds. I don't know how I got them, but I just uh, found uh, running away, went into a house, and people started screaming at the side of me. And I found I was covered in blood. It was only a, a flesh wound, but uh, in my arm, so not not that serious. But
1: uh, how long before you found the the full extent of the of the massacre?
7: It's hard to answer that question. I couldn't put a figure on it. I could only say that on the basis of my personal observation that I'd been walking down the street when gun firing started, that there are about a 1,000 people in the street packed in between two high walls, a street about 20 metres wide. If people started firing automatic weapons fire into such a crowd, they couldn't do anything but kill a lot of people. And uh, I think I survived because... The gunfire was in my direction but between the guns and me were there was a, a dense crowd of Timorese youth and that their bodies absorbed the bullets probably that otherwise would have uh, killed or injured me. And only after I uh, returned to Australia did I find out the full extent of the, the deaths that uh, people were killed not only on that day but on the following days uh, people who'd been taken to hospital were taken out by soldiers and their heads crushed with rocks and... Uh, episodes like that, so that a lot of killing went on and not just in the few minutes uh, outside the cemetery and that large numbers of uh, Timorese were arrested and other Timorese felt themselves to be unsafe. Later that evening, I got back to my hotel, realised I was uh, injured, thought I'd better seek some medical treatment and I knew that there was a Timorese medical clinic attached to uh, the church uh, in town so I went there and uh, sought some uh, medical assistance, found myself on the operating table with some Timorese. Uh, I don't think they were doctors, but uh, they were to a wound in my arm and they cleaned out my arm. So I thought, stitched it up and uh, all the time asking me who I was and what my occupation was. And so I told them I was a development worker from Australia. I said, no, no, you're a journalist. And they insisted that I was a journalist because what they wanted were journalists who could uh, report what was happening. And this uh, clinic was attached to the church. It was known to be a, a centre of the Timorese resistance. And I was a bit anxious to get out of there and uh, they wanted me to stay. But I wanted to get out because I thought the uh, there's a good chance that that clinic would be raided and uh, I would be arrested. And if I had an injury, which I obviously did, i changed my clothes and uh, got rid of um, some of the blood. I thought if I was seen to be injured, I would be uh, assumed to have been present at the demonstration and therefore a, a target for the Indonesian military. So eventually I left that clinic in a few hours afterwards uh, in the middle of the afternoon to walk back to my hotel, which was a couple of kilometres away, and uh, just walking down the road by myself. And uh, I had to pass a couple of... Uh, military hangouts uh, or uh, buildings uh, frequented by substantial numbers of Indonesians in military uniforms. And I was wondering what's going to happen when I go past here. I'm uh, uh, trying to disguise my wounded arm, but if they recognise I'm wounded, they'll probably arrest me. But they didn't. I got back to uh, my hotel. I met some of the other foreigners in town there. and uh,
1: What had they seen? Different to you?
7: Uh, some of them had seen much the same as me. I remember one of them, uh, another Australian, said to me, oh, they were using rubber bullets, weren't they? And <laughs> my response was, what? I don't think they use rubber. The Indonesian Army knows what rubber bullets are, let alone use them in a situation like this. That was real live gunfire. I think he was in shock, as I was, although I didn't recognise it at the time, that, and was struggling to come to terms with uh, the extent of what had happened. But there were a number of uh, foreigners there. Uh, I think there were three Australians, me and a a couple of others. And they'd been there because they knew East Timor was in crisis and they were there to do what they could to help. There were others who were journalists, uh, a couple from Britain, including one who'd uh, had a long experience of East Timor and other conflict zones, and he'd been filming the demonstration and fortuitously for him and for the rest of us the rest of the world really before just before the shooting started he'd gone into the cemetery to film some people who were tending the graves of the two youths who were the uh, ostensible reason for the uh, demonstration because he was inside the cemetery when the shooting started it was all uh, outside the, the cemetery so he was able to film what was going on from a distance of about 40 metres and uh, some Timorese who were injured and others who weren't, had run into the cemetery to escape the gunfire and he was able to film those and get some close-up footage of people who'd been injured and who were almost certainly going to die, uh, certainly without medical attention. And he took the footage which showed... In graphic detail, what had happened, and was later able to smuggle that out of the uh, out of the country and back to Europe, and it was took about a week for it to get back to Europe and be uh, shown on TV. But they, that footage went around the world, and
1: he hit it in the graves, didn't he?
7: Yes, he. Uh, after the shooting died down, the Indonesians came into the cemetery and uh, arrested the people who were there. Before they'd done that, this cameraman had the uh, foresight to take the cassette the film cassette out of his camera bury it uh, in a grave plot and put another empty uh, cassette uh, into the uh, the camera so uh, he was detained by the uh, the military and interrogated for a while but eventually released later that evening after dark he went back to the cemetery which by then was deserted dug up the uh, cassette and arranged for it to be uh, smuggled out of the country. The following day, those of us uh, who'd, who'd been witnesses to uh, the events there decided there was nothing more we could do inside the country. It was much more important to get out and uh, tell the world what had happened. But we had trouble getting on, on a plane. We knew there was a plane due to leave Dilly that uh, that afternoon, but the uh, Indonesians who staffed the uh, the airline office and the ticketing and so forth refused to give us tickets. We demanded tickets. Uh, well, I didn't personally, but one of the others did. In retrospect, I was clearly in shock and uh, unable to do very much. Uh, but one of the others, uh, the woman who hadn't uh, attended the, the rally and so wasn't a direct eyewitness of what had happened, she had the presence of mind to demand seats on the plane that was going to leave there were plenty of seats available through her insistence there were i think uh four foreigners uh including me uh managed to uh, get on a plane and get out of uh, get out of east timor flying back to uh bali and i didn't know at the time but this woman was very insistent uh uh, when we got to Bali, that she wanted me to act as her bodyguard. She didn't say why she needed a bodyguard particularly. And I don't know, I was, I was up to being much of a bodyguard, but in my circumstances, an injured arm, which wasn't much use, and uh, being in a state of shock. But uh, I remained at her side until uh, her plane took off to Jakarta and she was flying back to, to Europe. And I didn't find out till. Uh, I met her a couple of years later, that the reason she was so anxious for me to be a bodyguard was that she was smuggling out the uh, the footage of the massacre. She'd been asked to do that by the cameraman, but uh, that was the reason for her anxiety while she was hanging around uh, the airport in Bali waiting for a connecting flight. So I made a rather modest contribution towards getting that, that film back to Europe. That film, I think, was... Uh, Crucial to the world understanding how severe the or the extent of this massacre. In this case, one picture was worth far more than a thousand words. I also had a a bit of film, uh, still footage I'd taken with my camera, only of events before the massacre, not during it. I wasn't in a position to film anything then. I didn't know. I, I had with me a dodgy camera. It was a community-date-abroad camera. And I'd taken it away on a trip some months previously and it hadn't worked properly. But I was assured it had been repaired adequately. And so I'd taken a lot of pictures with it. So I was smuggling that out. I came back to Australia the following day, hidden in my knickers, hoping I wasn't going to be strip searched. And I wasn't. But uh, somewhat to my surprise, I thought I'd kept a pretty low profile when I arrived back in Bali and I had to stay there overnight. Uh, I don't know what surveillance I was under, but it was very thorough indeed. When I came to leave uh, to go to the airport the following uh, day, I just hailed uh, a taxi in the street, shoved my bags in the taxi, and we headed off. When I got to the airport, the taxi insisted on parking in the furthest corner of the airport and leaving me to my own devices, injured arm and all, to carry my bags from probably at least two or 300 metres, to the uh, departures building. And I realised why the taxi driver had done that when I got there. I was greeted as, at the doors of the departure building by someone doing a video film of me. Why would they want to uh, go to the trouble of taking a video film of an innocent tourist in Bali, you might say? They knew who I was very clearly, and the taxi driver had been given clear instructions as to what he was to do to make sure that they had some time to prepare for my arrival at the airport. I'm sure they knew which, exactly which flight I was going on and so forth. And when I went to check in, uh, they were in no hurry to check me in. the uh, guy at the check-in counter said he'd have to go and consult outside and disappear for 15 minutes and came back again. And uh, so I was given the right royal treatment. Everything I did was filmed, even when I was... Uh, hanging around the departure lounge, a couple of young women came up and uh, chatted me up and one pretended to uh, sit next to me while someone else took a photo and it was very obvious they weren't really interested in photographing each other. (laughs) They weren't taking selfies, which had never been heard of at that stage, they were photographing me. All this time I had a few rolls of what I thought might be valuable film on my person and I breathed an enormous sigh of relief when I actually got on the flight without being uh, strip searched I've done a lot of flying around uh, Asia over the years but that flight was by far the worst I'd ever experienced and uh, uh, an overnight flight from Bali back to uh, Australia and uh, the in-flight film would have to be one that had a lot of guns and gunfire in it which uh, I just couldn't watch. Even months later I couldn't watch uh, any film that uh, involved uh, any sort of violence just far too traumatised
1: And that's the thing, isn't it? Even though you were home, it didn't end there.
7: Absolutely not. Uh, I thought it ended there. I I thought it it ended once I got away from the cemetery and I was in one piece, even if uh, I was slightly injured. I got back to Australia with a story to tell and community Abroad was keen for me to tell the story and gave me every assistance. I arrived back in the morning with no sleep and spent... uh, After a couple of hours to take a shower, a a tour of uh, every media outlet in town that was interested in the story, and that was really all of them. I don't know how many interviews I did for TV and radio. Uh, I remember being down at The Age, uh, who kindly developed all these photos I'd uh, taken to discover that on two rolls of film, I think there were only four photos that uh, worked. The camera I had was extremely dodgy. And the photos I had, a couple of them were actually a little bit useful. They showed photographs of the rally marching through the streets of um, uh, Dili, and a couple taken at the cemetery I'd climbed up on a wall before the military had arrived and photographing the crowd milling about and displaying their banners and so forth. And I've still got copies of those photos at home, but out of uh, two or three rolls of film, I had four photos which could actually be developed <laughs> was I pissed off at the <laughs> Slack uh, CAA guy who claimed he'd uh, repaired the camera whilst doing nothing about it. I can remember uh, the age, um, were well, given the, the film, and, and one of my shots appeared on the age the following day, taken a few minutes before the massacre started, with uh, right across the, the front page with the caption headline caption, 15 minutes to death. Remember the age guy, when I was being interviewed by someone, uh, by a journalist, uh, someone else came back with these developed photos saying, oh, well, it looks peaceful enough. I said, well, of course it was peaceful enough. I've already told you that. (laughs) But um, being a a competent journalist, he wasn't going to take my word for it. He wanted some objective evidence, uh, which I'd given him. In fact, it wasn't entirely peaceful, something I didn't talk about at the time because I was afraid it would be uh, seized upon by the media and distorted and uh, used to uh, the disadvantage of the Timorese. But at one point during the march through the streets, there was a bit of a a scuffle took place. I I was 100 or 150 metres away, so I didn't see it in detail. But it looked like there was a scuffle and a bit of shouting and yelling and people uh, running about. And when I got to the cemetery, there was a Timorese guy with an injured foot and He very proudly showed me his injured foot. It seemed probably more serious than the injuries I had, but he was very proud of it, and he would said he'd been injured by an Indonesian soldier, and I think the scuffle that I'd seen uh, was a scuffle between some Timorese and a couple of soldiers, and that one of the soldiers was quite seriously injured, I don't think fatally, but uh, on the plane on which I left uh, Dili the following day, the plane also contained a number of uh, Indonesian governmental figures and some military, and there was a guy uh, on a stretcher down the back of the plane who I think was the guy who'd been injured in this scuffle. I think he'd probably been stabbed by one of the Timorese, and maybe the Timorese who'd showed me his injured foot, of which he seemed so proud. So there was a viol- one violent incident during uh, a rally that went for an hour. Even if that one incident in which a Timorese youth rather foolishly, in my opinion, stabbed a soldier. That couldn't possibly justify the massacre of what proved to be several hundred people. We'll never know the exact figure. Appropriately, I think, the focus of the international media attention was on uh, that situation as a whole, that several hundred people were massacred by the Indonesian military. Maybe you could say that one particular incident in which somebody was stabbed was... uh, was immaterial, that the tension had been building up between the Timorese and the military over the Portuguese visit, which never happened, that uh, such uh, a conflagration was uh, inevitable. That's probably uh, the most plausible uh, analysis of it.
1: Short-term and long-term recovery for you?
7: I said uh, I thought I got out unscathed. I hadn't been killed as I expected to be, and I thought, well, I could just go on with life, and I had a a burning desire to uh, let the world know uh, what had happened there. I was really deeply angry about that, Uh, although curiously, I didn't feel a strong personal antipathy to uh, the Indonesian military. I was more angry at other people who were likely to be close to me. That was one peculiar manifestation of... uh, what is now known as post traumatic stress disorder but i came back to australia thinking well i've survived i'm a bit tired i'm a little bit stressed but uh, i can tell the world what i've seen and i did that and i kept on doing that till people got sick of it i kept on doing it for more, for about a month then i collapsed in a heap one day i was physically quite ill i'd been due <clears throat> to go to a community I had a broad board of directors meeting and I was actually the, the staff representative on the board of directors at that time. Of course, I was going to go to the meeting, but I woke up on the appointed day and I was just too physically ill to uh, do anything. I'd, and I had to be uh, given some uh, medication to calm me down and uh, crawl into bed and uh, uh, stay there for a while and uh, then start some uh, some psychotherapy. During the time when I before I realised that I was psychologically traumatised. I was in hospital for about 10 days whilst the uh, wound on my arm was treated and it turned out it had been sewn up by the clinic in East Timor but they hadn't cleaned it out properly and it became infected with some tropical bug which um, could have been uh, pretty serious. If I'd stayed in Timor I may well have uh, developed septicemia and and died of it uh, without proper treatment but Fortunately, I was back in Melbourne and got the best treatment Melbourne had to offer and uh, spent uh, 10 days in hospital having the wound cleaned out and uh, the infection removed and then uh, finally uh, then required some uh, a skin graft to uh, patch me up. And I started some psychotherapy in there. The hospital uh, didn't say anything to me, but they realised that I, or somebody told them, I was psychologically traumatised, though. I got a session with their counsellor who she told me was accustomed to being called upon to deal with airline pilots who'd had heart attacks and would have to give up their job and other people with that sort of trauma. After one session with her, she was even more traumatised than I was and she said she'd have to withdraw from this process and I'd need to find another counsellor with a different skill set. So I'd already started some... Trauma counselling before I realised that I needed it, but when I fell physically sick, uh, I did gradually acknowledge that I had been traumatised, and uh, I understood that, and uh, but not many other people did. Uh, My family, my extended family, had no understanding of that, and I don't blame them. They they had trouble understanding what had happened to me, let alone the fact that that it might have traumatised me. I remember a, a cousin of mine and I, while I was in hospital, came in to see me, which was very generous of her, and I appreciated her presence. But she said to me, "Oh, look, we had to look up a, an atlas to find out where East Timor was, and we did that. And thought, oh, why didn't you go left instead of right and avoid East Timor? So that was the extent of her knowledge of it, and I couldn't blame her for if she didn't understand that I'd been traumatised. I spent about the next 15 months, I suppose, perhaps nearly 18 months, in various stages of trauma. And I learned a lot about uh, trauma and trauma counselling through that period, through the various uh, people. From a work point of view, I was uh, pretty useless, but the organisation was kind enough to indulge me. And eventually I uh, came to terms with it. Little things I found hard, such as people who would know that I'd had an injured arm because it had been in a sling for about a month or six weeks after I had a skin graft, and people would ask me, oh, how's your arm? I remember someone even three years after the event who I hadn't seen for a long time, how's your arm? I'd just smile sweetly and say, oh, it's okay, thanks, but thinking, well, why the hell don't you ask me what about my mind? I wanted to remember that because I think it's important that the world remembers that, and they did. And, uh, well, it
1: was a pivotal moment, wasn't it? Well,
7: yes, it, it was a pivotal moment, but I think it was only a pivotal moment because what happened would not have been such a pivotal moment had there not been foreigners there who could have got out the word and the evidence of what had happened in such a dramatic way. And, of course, the most dramatic was the film footage. And uh, I think the people in East Timor, I'm sure they are, eternally grateful for the guy who took that footage and was able to make sure that it got to air. And other people like me who provided verbal accounts or the odd uh, still image (laughs) Imperfect, though it may have been, contributed, but the key, put it this way, the sum total of what uh, everybody did enabled that to become a crucial event in the eventual independence that East Timor was able to achieve. Even someone as unsympathetic to that whole situation as Gough Whitlam acknowledged it with regret that that uh, incident, that uh, massacre outside the Santa Cruz Cemetery was the turning of the tide for East Timor and from Whitlam's point of view it was all downhill from that. I remember he uh, said something um, a few years afterwards, oh, the the Indonesian military really overplayed their hand at the Santa Cruz massacre and I didn't respond to that at the time. I I think I should have, at least with a letter to the, the age, just asking Whitlam what would have been an appropriate hand for the Indonesian military to play on that occasion, should they have only killed 19 or 20, as they uh, initially claimed to have done, or should they have killed all the uh, foreign witnesses like me, so the word never got out? Would that have been a more appropriate hand to play? But uh, Whitlam had uh, had his virtues, of course, but I think the biggest uh, black mark against his whole political career was the attitude he took at the time, and for many years afterwards, until his death, really, towards uh, East Timor. I think he couldn't really cope with the fact that uh, he uh, could have done something. Perhaps there are powerful reasons why he didn't. His own government was in crisis and in a state of collapse at the time the Indonesians originally invaded East Timor. Well, in fact, he was no longer in government. But uh, he didn't want to do anything. He, before the Indonesians invaded, he could have uh, taken a stand and discouraged the Indonesians from invading. But he didn't do that. He wanted to see East Timor integrated into uh, Indonesia. He didn't want it to happen through an invasion, as as they did. But he wanted it to happen through other means. Once they had invaded, he would do nothing to give any succor to those wanting uh, those Timorese who wanted some uh, some freedom and independence.
1: And you've been listening to Bob Munts, who in 1991 was in Dili, East Timor and witnessed the Delhi Massacre, the Santa Cruz Massacre. At that time he was working for Community Aid Abroad and he went on to work with Oxfam, which became, Community Aid Abroad became Oxfam Australia and now he's an active member of the Greens Party. You are listening to Melbourne's Community Radio Station 3CR where the time is Seven minutes past five o'clock. Coming up, the elections in Venezuela.
6: Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogra, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us. And it's it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing.
0: Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch.
6: They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people.
0: Who does the killing?
6: The company has uh, specially arranged security forces.
0: Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. You're all invited to the Sampari Art Exhibition and Sale, organised by the Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office at the ACU Gallery on Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. The Sampari Exhibition will also include a host of exciting events, including poetry, literature, the environment and film between December 4th and 13th. For more information, go to dfat.federalrepublicofwestpapua.org or call Bronwyn on 0413 988 280. The Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office is Atricia Sapota.
1: Elections were held in Venezuela at the weekend for the National Assembly, and the opposition has overturned nearly two decades of dominance by the Socialist, first under Hugo Chavez and later Nicolas Madura. Seventy-four percent of the population voted. The opposition has 99 seats, the Socialists 46, with 22 yet to be declared. This morning I spoke with Dr Tim Anderson and asked him were there certain areas where the opposition was strongest or was it an overall defeat?
8: Um, It was an overall victory in many respects. The vote is almost two to one for the opposition, although it's a little bit more complicated because there's some small parties which have fractured from the opposition and a couple have joined the government, but basically... It was a very strong vote for the opposition.
1: Well, the major question is why?
0: The
8: major question really is, of course, heavily disputed, but the, the government... Remember, it's still a government there. It's a presidential system. There's still a Chavista, President Nicolas Maduro. They say it's the economic war being waged against them, but really, the, certainly the economic turmoil, the economic factor of inflation, the, frankly, failed exchange rate policies... The question of the blame for that is whether it's mismanagement for the government or uh, an economic war by the speculators and the hoarders and so on and the truth is it's something of, of a combination But the government has played down the mismanagement side of it i mean the problem is that this has been going on for a long time the inflation the foreign exchange problems it's meant that the price control regimes have been mocked more or less and there's been a um, huge black market and the government really hasn't been able to stem the black market and that's led to shortages and unrealistic prices and so on. So that economic turmoil, the shortages, it's a combination of the government not being able to get a handle on it and a, an economic war of speculation and hoarding against them. But the balance of where that lies is something that's um, you know, still being
1: debated basically. The missions, what will happen in that area?
8: Well, there's two things there. One is that we don't know exactly yet what size majority the opposition will have. It's certainly got a majority. There are two super majorities that have different consequences, basically, are the 60% and 66%. It seems uh, fairly sure that the opposition is going to get a 60% majority in the National Assembly. Remember, by the way, this is uh, will be a majority in the National Assembly. There's still a Chavista president, Maduro, and the states, the, govern- the, sta- the governors of the states and the municipalities are still dominated by the Chavistas. So uh, it's important the, uh the, the victory of the oppositions won, but it doesn't mean the whole system's changed, basically. Uh, really, the mission, the social missions, uh, you rightly point out, are some of the most important institutions that's been founded by the, the Chavez government over the last 15 years. And all of those institutions are vulnerable. They're up for grabs. The opposition has run a lot of doublespeak on the missions because they're obviously very popular. The missions, that is, the social missions of education and health and a range of other things. The government's um, provided 900,000 houses in in recent years too. That's another one. They're all vulnerable, basically, um, to budget cuts. And in the National Assembly, the opposition does have the power to reject budgets. So there's going to be... A political war and probably a constitutional crisis as a result of this because it's a presidential system like the US you know where the Congress the opposition has controlled the Congress but Obama a Democrat has controlled the White House but because that's a stable sort of system the opposition more or less respects the presidential the presidential power there Uh, the opposition in Venezuela is not going to do that they're going to be confronting the president straight away they're going to try and get rid of the president so they're going to try and Extend their powers. They already have a fair amount of power, and as I said, it depends exactly what sort of majority they're going to end up with. I suspect it's going to be the first of the simple majorities.
1: You say the governors are chavistas. What's likely to happen there? Is open conflict between the new government and the governors?
8: Yeah, well, that depends on the area. The, the opposition's always had standing in amongst some of the governors and uh, the municipalities. So, but the Chavistas won a fairly strong victory about uh, two years ago in that area, and they were, that's when the violent protests began in Venezuela. I mean, one, one interesting thing is in terms of the institutions, the opposition has been saying that the electoral commission is completely biased and corrupt and so on and so on, whereas outside observers have said it's actually one of the best in the world now uh, all of that criticism of the electoral commission is going to disappear so that institution in a sense is probably going to regain some credibility some respect because of the there wasn't really there was a smooth election everyone said that except the results and the credibility of the electoral commission has obviously risen because the opposition is going to not going to not likely to challenge it very much but all of the other institutions really are going to be contested because The opposition doesn't like the Constitution, which was created in '99. So there's really a very large ambit of conflict that's going to begin now with the the National Assembly being controlled by the opposition.
1: And privatisation of state enterprises?
8: They can't do that directly because it's still a presidential system, as I said. Most of the executive power is with President Nicolas Maduro as it is with President Obama in the US. But the sort of things they can do, for example, are they can... They can block public spending on social programs. They can give an amnesty to one of the opposition leaders who's in jail for being linked to some murders. They can have approval block international treaties. They can approve or block uh, long-term plans. And if they have a first simple majority, they can also censure vice presidents and ministers and not give special power to the president. That's probably not that important. So you can see there is there 's a system where they have substantial power, but the President still has substantial power too and in this case it 's worse than other systems because the distance political distance between President and the Congress is enormous it 's not in australia for example we 've got two major parties which fight and bigger, but more or less their policies are pretty similar in venezuela there 's a much bigger distance, and the opposition, the right wing there, has a history of being violent and uh, aiming for coups so it's not even beyond the bounds of possibility they might try uh, some sort of coup against the President.
1: And the relationship with Cuba?
8: The relationship with Cuba will be definitely under attack, as indeed a lot of their, a lot of the uh, international agreements, for example, that Venezuela has been helping the Caribbean islands with um, subsidised petroleum, that will be under attack. The relationship with Cuba will definitely be under attack. The leader of the opposition was involved directly in physical attacks on the Cuban embassy back when the the US-backed coup against uh, Chavez uh, was carried out in, in 2002. You know, So there's a history of a lot of these people of being involved in, in violent attacks. And Cuba's definitely under the gun. The other side to that is that the have, have been have held the whole gambit of power politically for 15 years, and so a lot of the institutions are fairly well established. So there's going to be a fair amount of resistance. It's going to be difficult for them to dismantle all those institutions. People will defend them. And, for example, the army and the constitution is a Bolivarian constitution. The opposition never liked important elements of the constitution, including the, the Bolivarian aspect of it. The army is now the Bolivarian army, and they're much more embedded with the, the project of the Bolivarian revolution than they were, say, 10 or 12 or 13 years ago when that, when that coup happened, for example. So really we're in for a lot of conflict in Venezuela, and because that constitution has been tested on the the balance of powers between the president and the um, and the assembly. The lawyers will be involved too if the violence doesn't overtake things. One other thing I might mention, one of the other issues is the, the insecurity and the violence in Venezuela, which hasn't... Well, there's been some progress, but limited progress. It's still a lot of violence and some of it linked into political forces there. The opposition has tried to blame the government for that, but that's not really totally credible because the opposition does control some of the states, and in the states they've maintained state level police forces for example the state of Miranda is uh, the governor of the state of Miranda is Capriles who's the main presidential candidate for the opposition that has the worst crime rate in Venezuela and they haven't cooperated with the national government on uh, initiatives like the national Bolivarian police force for example to to deal with violent crime so the opposition hasn't been able to totally blame the government for the violence but people on the street level generally do blame the government and that's why in a sense, the, the the government led by Nicolas Maduro, still a government led by Nicolas Maduro, is going to have to take probably much more seriously their failures. They haven't been able to carry a large section of their own constituency with them. You know, a two-to-one vote is something you can't blame on just disinformation and political destabilisation and so on. There has to be a lot of soul-searching on the part of what is still a Chavista government led by Nicolas Maduro.
1: And how are they going to... In- improve the economy because the the economy is is based mainly on oil the price of oil is not going to go up in the near future
8: yeah it's not so much to do with that it's about stabilizing the i mean of course they've had to make some budget adjustments with the the change in the price of oil but they've still got a lot of money um, and they have invested a lot of that money into human capital into education and a lot of Productive things, but it's the instability of the foreign exchange, the price control regime, the inflation that's really, and the, and then in consequence of that, the, the black marketing and the hoarding and the speculation that has created chaos in in commodity markets. So that has to be stabilised. I mean, it's not yet clear whether the opposition will help that at all. They haven't. There hasn't been a cooperative relationship. You know, so there's a big gulf, political gulf between them. But really it means, in many respects, I believe that a foreign exchange regime has to be make some concessions to market forces effectively because they, haven't, they don't control the economy and they can't control prices. So in those circumstances, they can't just allow these things to spiral, you know, over 100% inflation to spiral on and just blame the black marketeers. They have to be able to adjust the foreign exchange regime and the price control regime to a degree. They have to make concessions in that sense to broader market forces because they end up with tremendous shortages and their constituency deserts them. So that's going to be difficult because it might be that the opposition in the National Assembly wants to keep blaming the government and not accept any responsibility of their own in trying to stabilise the situation or alternatively demand enormous concessions in terms of dismantling uh, important state institutions. So like I said, there's a lot of things in play at the moment and the conflict is probably going to increase um, even before the National Assembly takes its seats in, in January.
1: And is there likely to be overt intervention rather than covert intervention from the US?
8: Well, there could be because, the, as I said, this is a right-wing opposition which is are now having a majority in the National Assembly. Um, they have a long history of violence and destabilisation and coups and if their strategy is then we have to get rid of the president which probably it will be then I mean that's that's where the constitutional crisis is going to be and they've used violence many times in the past for their objectives so it's as if the congress uh, a republican congress there's elements of this in the US of course the republican congress tried to impeach and get rid of the president in the US and used violence for those ends that they, they'll almost certainly try to do it through legal channels but it's not really clear, you know, whether they're going to be able to succeed there. At the moment, there's an opposition or there's a, a right-wing controlled National Assembly, which is now in place until 2020. But there's a Chavistas president, elect, legitimately elected president, who's in, in, in office and running the government until 2018.
1: But if there's a referendum, he could go out in April next year.
8: Well, that's right. There's a possibility, because of the Constitution, of a recall referendum, They can't force it themselves through the National Assembly, but they can get a recall referendum. Um, So that's quite likely. They tried it on Chavez in 2003, 2004, they failed. Um, They could try it again. In fact, in the current circumstances, if it happened very quickly. um, I mean, the polls, for example, on the president are 35 to 30 with um, the opposition ahead, slightly ahead, not as much as in the National Assembly. You've got to remember, in the presidential system, ordinary people pay a lot more attention to the president than they do to the National Assembly, even though the participation rate in these elections was very high in in Venezuelan terms, 75%, as you said at the beginning. So Maduro is probably vulnerable at this time. If the process goes on and that that recall referendum happens, say, you you suggest five months, uh, in a number of months' time, it may be that the, the population starts to attribute more blame to the, the opposition, who knows. Um, but at the moment, the presidency is vulnerable to. If they had an election now, it's quite plausible, it's quite likely probably that Maduro would lose right now. What happens two years or three years down the track is going to be quite different. So they'll be, the, the, the right wing, the mud, they call them, the, the unified table of the, of the opposition are going to look pretty carefully at that, how they're going to manoeuvre to try and force Maduro out of office. They have some options there and um, I don't think they can do it quickly, legally. That's where a violent uh, option is, uh, the risk.
1: Finally, Tim, cooperation with the neighbouring countries in Latin America.
8: I think that's more stable. I don't think that the the achievements of Chavez in creating in initiating UNASUR and CELAC, the, the Union of South American Nations and all of the Caribbean and Latin American nations, I don't think... The opposition will try to move out of that one. Lunasur was the major observers at these elections, and they gave support to the election system and the election result. So they've maintained their credibility. They've got a lot of right-wing governments in South America in that. And so it seems to me that's a more stable achievement. The ALBA, of course, is another story. The ALBA, the smaller block of progressive left countries, which has relied a lot on Venezuela's weight, that's at risk now. But UNASUR and CELAC, I believe that because states like Colombia and Chile have been involved, they've got unanimity on that, on that front, I think the role of UNASUR is going to remain there, which will be important because indeed it's been UNASUR which has been a bit of a bulwark against destabilisation and violent destabilisation in a range of countries. Uh, it was in Venezuela for these elections. If there's still destabilisation and constitutional change by the the right-wing dominated National Assembly I think UNASUR will be probably still have an important role there so I don't think that's as as vulnerable because it's got a much stronger and wider base.
1: Finally personal comments from you Tim is a a great supporter of Chavez and Adura
8: Mm. I think um, it's very sad in many respects but to have, you have to really cheat home responsibility, a fair amount of responsibility to the government they tried to adapt to the the foreign exchange and inflationary and black market situation, they haven't been able to do it and their approach to it really has got to be seriously reassessed because as much as as you might lament this victory by the right wing in Venezuela, you've got to say that uh, it was the responsibility of uh, Chavismo and the, the great the coalition that they, they put together. Uh, they call it the grand patriotic um, pole, you know, coalition. They have to carry the people with them. That's absolutely fundamental, and they have to... They should have been building on that. That had to be their priority, and they, they've stuck with some policies which haven't been able to get them out of the mire of this economic war, that, as they characterise it, and that they really have to do a, a serious... It's very sad because, as uh, a number of commentators have said, like Steve Elmer, for example, in, in Venezuela, it's made a huge difference to people's lives. Millions of people have been pulled out of poverty. The social missions have been tremendous things. They weren't in themselves unsustainable, but some of the macro policies of the government were seriously flawed, and they have to uh, reassess that and not pretend that didn't happen, basically. That... You have to carry the people with you in any sort of any sort of progressive change that's happening, and that's there'll have to be a lot of soul searching amongst uh, the, the government of Nicolas Maduro.
1: And that's Dr. Tim Anderson, who's a senior lecturer in the political economy department at the Sydney University, speaking about the elections in Venezuela over the weekend. That's about all I have for today. No. Jonathan this afternoon, but we'll be hearing the radioactive show at five thirty. So in the meantime, we'll have a couple more community announcements before radioactive.
3: Live the freedom after fill and
6: defeat. So many things happen
3: I don't want to Don't miss this year's Napier Street Block Party, Thursday, December 10 from four to eight PM. Brought to you by Yarra Youth Services and Yarra Freezer. Featuring local bands, rappers, dancers, indigenous food demonstrations, Ethiopian and Italian food stalls, free halal barbecue, and market stalls. Come down to Atherton Gardens Reserve, 125 Napier Street, Fitzroy. All ages welcome. Yarra Youth Services is a 3CR supporter. I see a lack to can't leave us. When we
6: speak, to leave us.
3: Radio Adelaide, Australia's longest-running community radio station, is calling upon supporters to speak out before it's too late. The University of Adelaide sold Radio Adelaide's home on North Terrace to help fund its new medical school. A decision and funds commitment was expected in November, but instead the university has opened another brief consultation period that pushes a decision closer to Christmas. The station community is concerned that this is a precursor to shutting the station down. Show your support for a station that supports our diverse community and head to www.saveradioadelaide.org to sign the petition. 3CR in solidarity with Radio Adelaide.
1: Here's a song for the dreamers Late night drunken schemers For the bruise and the busted us flat
4: Get the lowdown on the know-how, the food know-how. Victorian households are throwing away over $2,000 a year in wasted food. That's just not smart. You can be smarter than the average Victorian by joining Food Know How and learn simple steps to reduce your food waste, save money and protect the environment. This program is free to residents of Yarra, Moorland, Darabin, Maribyrnong or Whittlesey. Visit foodknowhow.org.au Funding for the project provided by Victorian Government's Metropolitan Local Government Waste and Resource Recovery Fund. The Food Know-How
1: Program is a 3CR supporter. And that's just about Tuesday home time for tonight. Next week will be the last program for the year and then after that I'll be back I think the third week in January. But for now I'll be back next week. We'll have a couple of Wrap-ups with um, Nick McClellan We're looking at issues pertaining to the Pacific, and I'm not quite sure what Brian McKinley has in mind, but he, he's looking for something to wrap up, and he's even thinking what he might do in the, the new year because apparently 1916 was a, a pretty big year, so we'll be hearing all about that, the 100th year, uh, about that from Brian McKinley in the new year. So I'll say... Bye for now, and I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock.